If you suspect Big Gin has a grip on the UK hospitality trade, you are correct. But this doesn't mean you can't get poured as well. Receiving the right data will help you understand your market and competitors, as this episode will explain. If you're fans of Distillers Podcast, you know that marketing is something we are always interested in. How and why a customer picks your spirit or the competition is literally something that scientists study. And if my bookshelves are anything to go by, there is a brain force worth of marketing books out there, all promising you the same thing. How to get your product noticed. So, when distillers received a press release from the data collection agency Shepper, of course, it caught our eye. But we soon realised this was far from being your usual marketing idea. Hi, this is Bella Mitrovich, editor of the Distillers Journal and the Distillers Journal podcast. And I'm Ross McPherson, co-host of the Distillers Journal podcast. In this episode, we're going to let Toby Derbyshire of Shepherd explain this much further. But in a nutshell, in gathering data to help you sell your product better, Shepherd doesn't spend its time gleaming facts from reports on Google. It actually sends out what it calls Shepherds. Real people who pound the concrete to see for themselves what the facts are regarding your product. Normally, clients come to Shepper looking for specific facts about their product. In this case, Shepper commissioned itself to find out more about who was buying what when it comes to gin. Toby, Shepper says it offers an instant review of reality. How do you accomplish this? And exactly what does that mean? So what that means is it's it's real checks that, that come straight into our QA team. These are checked and validated bits of data that we can then display on an interactive dashboard. But what does that really mean is we're using real people out in, in the retail space or wherever our customers and organizations are operating and we uh, are able to deploy or, or launch a job onto our app that then gets pinged out and deployed out to our community. And they're able to go and pick that up almost straight away. So we have time zones for when things go live, um, sort of particular periods when, when we need that information collected, depending on the customer. And they're very responsive. We can we, we ran a pilot, um, a sort of a, a, a pilot thing at a um, a food and drinks conference last week, and it was inviting brands to come over, give me a project, uh, product, name me a product in the retail space in maybe some of the multiple grocers. And they were able to give us a product. We filled out, you know, this is the product, this is where we're gonna go, go, went to our customer delivery team. They were then to put it onto our app within minutes. And within an hour or two, we've got 25 examples of where that product they had told me was in their retail space, whether it was had a price on there, whether it was on promotion, whether it was on the right shelf in the uh, supermarket. So it is instant because it's our community are very reactive and very responsive. And we're able to get that information back, quality assure it, and then get it onto a dashboard that we then share a link with with our customers. So they can be seeing things within minutes of it going live. So very quick. A 
quick online check shows plenty of auditing and data collection companies. How do you differ? How do you differ? I think with us, the way I view this um, is very much real people collecting real data in real places. Uh, we, we don't use any sort of data web scraping for information. We're not building our insight out that way. We collect the state of the nation information as it's happening on the shelf. But I also think as our, one of our points of difference is our, is our interactive dashboards. We, we have a data scientist that builds these. He can build them bespoke. Any information that we've caught, he can put cross views in there so we can start comparing two bits of uh, data, which offers a, a, a more sort of insightful set of outputs. Um, and so, yeah, a couple of those things. I just think we we are, the, the dashboards in particular, I think are, are a bit of a USP and people have come to us to say, I hear your dashboards are great because I can interact with them. I can share them with anyone else in my business across a, a, a raft of, of internal stakeholders. So um, I think there are a couple of things that make us, make us different, unique. When I first heard about this whole idea of shepherds to go out and find data, I admit to being skeptical. Who I thought would have time for this? And would their opinions be valid? But what they're being paid for is to use their eyes and observe. They are anybody and everybody. Uh, and that's probably a, a, a good way of categorizing it because we the, the app is free for anybody to download. As long as you're over 18, uh, we have a broad range of different ages and demographics uh, across the country. Uh, whenever you see the, the pin drops of the jobs we've done, it covers from the, the far south to the far north of Scotland. So um, we we advertise online, uh, lots of sort of professional and social sort of paid adverts to try and drum up some business and PR and get, a, get our name out there because that's half the battle is, is making sure people are aware of who you are and what you can provide. But yeah, there's the, anybody can be a shepherd um, from full-time workers to part-time to students to the retired. Uh, there's absolutely no, you know, there's nobody that can't, can't go out there and, and, and do a job for us. So your shepherds, for example, they'll go to a supermarket and see what cereals are on the shelf or where makeup products are positioned or something like that? Yep, that's right. So depending on the the nature of the job and all the jobs are very different. We build our templates, the sort of survey data collection templates bespoke, depending on the needs of a particular client of ours. And it will be very simply, what do you need collecting and where do you need it collecting? How often do you need that collecting? We will build a template that satisfies all of those data points that need collecting. Uh, some can be very quick. They can be walk into a supermarket and take a picture of the cereal fixture, walk out, job done. Or it can be, can you check that this particular product is on at this price point or at this promotion? We also do lots of uh, consumer experiences and mystery shopping experiences as well to really capture that consumer journey uh, for the particular company or organization that wants us to, to capture that. So it can be very simple and very quick, a few minutes in and out of the supermarket, uh, or it could be a, a sit down and go and grab yourself a drink for, for 20 minutes and, and capture that sort of experience that that, that operator or, or organization are providing. So saying I hired Shepard to check out my whiskey. I want to see how the whiskey is doing, where it's being sold, and how. I've been told it's on the supermarket's top shelf, but I want to have that checked out to see if it's true. I want to see exactly where my competition's bottles are being placed. I want to know if the market is saturated and if I should pull out and put my emphasis elsewhere. And well, I'd like to hear nothing but good news. Toby, are you willing to tell me the bad? I think 
yes to all of those, to be honest. I think what we try to do, I think one thing we could do very easily is capture the data and give it to, you know, there's a dashboard. I hope that works out for you. But what we do like to do is add some kind of value in terms of try and scrutinize that data slightly. You know, so if we want to go and say, yes, essentially they want the data so they can go internally and strip it and scrutinize it. But we provide it in a way that they can download an Excel of all of the data came. So very sort of unsophisticated an Excel document that has all the data points collected per, per visit, per site. But we do offer the ability to, to apply some rigor and some scrutiny to that data. Certainly from, from my perspective, if I'm engaging with a, with a customer and we've got their data, I want to do that follow up and say, let's look at the dashboard together and let's go through and really pick out some of the key themes here. We do get uh, instances where, you know, as anticipated, an organization might say, I don't think I have the distribution that I've agreed maybe with a, with a supermarket chain. So can you go and check that? Because I can't go around 500 uh, supermarket stores. So um, if you can deploy your shepherds to do that within a week, they could have all that information back. And then again, that might create an instance where they say, oh, actually, we've only got 75% of the distribution that we thought we had or that we agreed. That's going to affect our sales. That's going to affect our you know, brand awareness. So that's maybe we're providing probably the news they thought they might hear, but maybe didn't want to hear. Uh, and then that gives them a position to then go back to their customers with to, to you know, have a, have a conversation with them about how they can improve that distribution, etc. So, yeah, we're not, we're not shy and, and very happy to really give some trend analysis as well. Jumping to gin now, why did you pick gin to do a report on? I think for, for us, I think it's a leading category uh, within spirits. There's huge choice. So it'd be interesting to see how that differs and alters amongst the, the on-trade landscape. My professional history sits in, in alcohol sales and predominantly spirits. So it was something quite close to my heart. And I was interested to see having been witness to data you know thrust upon me over the years it'd be interesting to capture our own and have a look at it and, and, and see what trends we can dig out of it but i think for me gin lots of choice lots of variety interesting to see if we can get some common themes coming out of that did anyone commission you to do the gin report or did you just decide to do it on your own no, we we did this one. We did this one on our own. Uh, there was no one uh, that was commissioning it. We uh, just thought it would be a worthwhile project to explore, research project to undertake. So yeah, we we did it through through our own selves and um, and and built out the sort of the, the project detail from uh, from the inside. You looked at over a thousand on trade venues. Were you only interested in sales in bars, pubs, restaurants, or also at stores? No, this was purely, purely on-trade. We find that often the on-trade activity can drive purchasing decisions in the off-trade. And, um, you know, we wanted to see what the operators were organically serving. So very much a state of the nation. You walk into a bar and ask for a gin and tonic, what happens? And let's capture that, the, that experience and see actually what you get served. Um, so, yeah, it was just, just the on-trade landscape. Did they specify what gin they wanted or... Do they want to see which gin was automatically used? Uh, no, they uh, they were they got what they were given in terms of they just asked for a single GNT, uh, and it was down to the operator then to serve and present one to them. Um, if the operator or the bar staff said, "What would you like?" we'd say, "Whatever you recommend." So it was really showing no preference at all from the consumer 
as to what gin they wanted. It was all about how is the on-trade serving gin and tonics in terms of what would you get if you just asked for one? You know, it's not, it's not a, a common question. Often we are so little with choice now with, with every category, uh, but we wanted to see how the operators are responding to, to the, the, the most organic conversation of saying, can I have a gin and tonic, please? Any thoughts on how you could get a consumer to change their gin choice, i.e. going from beef eater to a local craft gin? Uh, I think for me, historically, I think menu is the biggest key driver of a purchasing decision. Um, whether it's you know giving the consumers a real call to action, um, perhaps on providing any additional liquid credentials or a price point or a flavour profile, all these things to aid their decisions. I think if it was... Um, if I was a gin brand going into an on-trade environment, I, you know, my first port of call would be trying to get feature on that menu to really try and change that consumer's buying decision. And I think we see that everywhere. Menus are ubiquitous. You know, product details are ubiquitous now. Price points are often included. So we are trying to get people to, to make a more informed decision based on what their preferences are. In reading your reports, I noticed you found a connection between price and type of glass. Yes, which is again was sort of, we probably haven't thought that we would get that connection when we started the project, but um, it appeared that the higher the price point, a balloon glass, so those typical, almost fishbowl someone might call them, those balloon glass are more commonly used above a sort of six, seven pound price point than they were previously. So does that lead us to believe that people will expect uh, a, a balloon branded, often branded glassware, if they're buying a more expensive gin or in a more you know, premium plus location. Um, so yeah, we did find that prior to the sort of sub six pounds, it was very much in often a rocks glass or even just a highball. So, but yeah, over six pounds, we had a disproportionate, a disproportionate amount of balloon glasses being used. Your cheapest G&T found was around five pounds 60. The most expensive was over £20. Why was this drink so expensive? Location, all about location. Um, we, interestingly, when we looked at our sort of um, on-trade landscape, that more expensive one was in the, uh, the American bar, the Savoy, which when you think, oh, that's probably not surprising, but actually it just, we wanted to keep some of those really prestige exclusive venues in there just to understand again, to have a real sort of broad spectrum of um, segmentation in there. So, you know, this is what you get here and this is what you might get there. So yeah, the, the average, I think the sort of Midlands and East Midlands, the average price was coming out at about five, six pounds, uh, but certainly London unsurprisingly had a, uh, a, a disproportionate amount of expensive gins. I think the next one after that was somewhere in Mayfair or Kensington for about £16.50. So um, yeah, location is king for, <laughs> for the, the more expensive uh, gins. Places like Brighton and Scotland seem to show more loyalty towards local gins. Why do you think this is? My, in my experience, and I, I sort of was thinking about this when we had the report come through, and I think, you know, Brighton has got huge local support for Brighton Gin. It's, it's ubiquitous in the town, I've I found. Um, I think it's also got the support of a couple of uh, established pub groups as well, which give it probably, you know, more of a, a reach than, than maybe your independent gin and 50 other independent places. So that's what I think has caused Brighton Gin to feature so 
much in Brighton. Um, and I think there's also a similar a similar thing for for Scotland. So in Scotland, we was uh, our survey ran out in Edinburgh. And in my experience of being up in Edinburgh, you do see Edinburgh gin in a lot of places and they've got quite a wide skew range, um, a few gin liqueurs as well. So I just think that that those two areas seem to be very sort of their their regionalized gin variant was was prevalent and it was in a lot of the places we went to. And each in each region, we were probably between 50 and maybe 100 different locations. So uh, to, to find that in Brighton and in Edinburgh, we had lots of Brighton and Edinburgh gin. I don't think it was surprising, but it was interesting to pull out that we didn't see that replicated in Leeds or Manchester or Liverpool as much. If I was a small craft gin distillery, what could I take away from your report? A few things. I think um, despite the, you know, the top four or five gin companies in this report you see are in high single low digit share, uh, low double digit share, I should say, there are 158 different gins on this report that, that were served, highlighting there's plenty of choice. And so there's plenty of share to try and steal. That said, you know, it shows maybe a lot of saturation um, and that customers have too much choice. So penetrating this category and growing share and value and volume can be quite hard and quite expensive. So, you know, do we go, I want to be, I'm a small craft distillery. How can I penetrate the on-trade? I think it's, what brands have done historically that we can witness people like Cotswolds Gin, maybe like Brighton and Edinburgh Gin as well, is they become masters of their own territory. And then they look to then branch out regionally to the further regions, maybe getting involved in a, a national par, a pub or bar chain that gives them scope and scale and exposure. So yeah, I think it, it, it shows that there's choice, which is good that people are adventurous, but it that, that has its own problems as well. You mentioned market penetration. Back in February, I was in Arizona. It's in a small town, which claims to be the most cowboy town in all of Arizona. And I was in a small restaurant. I looked at the bar just to see what spirits they were selling. And they had Hendrix gin. Does that surprise you at all? No, it doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> I, I spent prior to you know i spent four years of my my working life at william grant and son so spent a lot of time working and 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 supporting and building hendrix uh, in the uk on trade and so i probably had a um i think aside from that you know i i had exposure to you know the the brand stories and their scale and their scope and their ambition so i probably had a disproportionate view of of wider marketing plans internationally but absolutely i think i think hendrix did an incredibly good job when the sort of premiumization model within the on-trade was coming out a few years ago, you definitely saw people upselling. They wanted to drink less. They wanted to drink better. Those kind of themes were were sort of battered around the trade quite a lot, maybe four or five years ago now. So I think they were, you know, they'd always been there. I think it was almost, you know, it was a right place, right time, but also a really good brand building story. You know, they'd been in the market for seven, eight, nine years before everyone else realized, oh, actually, I don't just want to drink a regular, potentially mainstream gin, although I don't like the term. And so they were just able to to capitalize on people's need for, I want to drink less or I want to drink better and I want to have more of an experience. So uh, I think the scale, I think their bottling's unique. I think their flavor and the way they build their liquids unique. So I'm not surprised that that Hendrix has, has got the global scale that it's, um, that it's uh, it, you know, that it probably deserves. 
your report found that the majority of tonics fall under free companies. Do most venues offer only a house tonic and one speciality tonic? Yeah, to an extent. So that was a really interesting one. Uh, we almost were as, as interested to see the, the coupling of the tonic with all the gins. And again, we were able to, to pull out these cross views of tonics per gin, per region, etc. So I think you know, fridge space is really limited. And if a venue wants to push a more premium upsell, then they need that they may need to offer a house version, so to speak, and then an upsell version of the same drink using a, a standard or a premium product or premium tonic in, in the elements of that build. So, so yeah, I mean, and often we found that, that there were more than two or three options of tonic, which, which does a venue need that? I don't know. Do they want to just show they've got a range of quality products and they, they, they understand flavor profiling them perhaps, but yeah, I think it's uh, gone are the days of, do you want this or that tonic? It's almost pick your tonic, pick your gin. Um, and it's, it's very much a pairing exercise, it would seem now. With tonic making up by volume the majority of the G&T, do you think this is an area ripe for expansion or do the big three have the market sewn up? I think there are more new tonics now than maybe 10 years ago, maybe five years ago. I think Fever Tree paved a way of sorts for a premium tonic experience. Maybe a tonic experience that the market, the consumers didn't know existed, um, but suddenly offered a, 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 you know, an aspirational premium, more expensive brand. And, you know, if you're there and you afford it and you want that uh, perceived more premium experience, then you'd buy into it. So. I think they definitely paved the way for that premium tonic and, and other companies wanted to play in that space, but also extend their range into adult softs as well. There are probably more alternatives to premium tonics now than the more mainstream standard tonics there are. So, you know, you have got a lot of companies and if you go to any drinks trade show, you'll probably see 10 to 15 different tonic or certainly tonic plus adult soft drink alternatives out there, or maybe the adult soft drink that's gone into the tonic range. So there's definitely lots of choice now. And I think as it comes back into limited fridge space, you know, you, you don't have the same back bar space as you might do fridge space. So actually having your tonic range is, is quite an important decision. Um, uh, is it sewn up? Perhaps. But I don't think that'll stop new brands coming out. This report was on gin. Do you see yourself doing something similar with other spirits or with beer? Yes, I do. I think um, different categories expand and we see their own subcategories evolve, you know, whether that's low and no or canned cocktails, that space in supermarkets being expanded monthly. Um, whiskey in winter, we see a high proportion of sale volume go up. So I think there's there are some really interesting trading period and category trends, seasonal category trends that would be really good good capture for us to do. I think we did gin in July because we thought that would be you know, it, it's a key trading period for for that uh, for that category. You know, assuming it's going to be hot and sunny, less so in England as it is in San Diego, I bet. But um, we do assume it's going to be warmer, more al fresco dining and outdoor drinking spaces, and the the, the highball, the taller glass, the spritz, the tonic serves are are very popular. So we did it in July because we wanted to capture maybe any promotion that's going on or if any brand has come to the market, that's when they want to be trading. They want to be trading in that summer period. 
So I think we will definitely look at other categories, but have a, a keen eye on the trading period that we're capturing. So low and no in January could be something really interesting or equally low and no in December to see how people are switching their typically December festive parties, overindulgence. Are they overindulging as much as we think or actually are they switching out to a slightly more moderated December? Who knows? We'll wait and see. If I was a craft gin distiller and I wanted to see the report, where do I get it? Well, you can go onto our website and download um, the sort of headline snapshot of the Gintel report. And this will give you the results in terms of the gin used, the tonic used. It look at the glassware per price, which we discussed. It looked at, it talked about branded glassware as well. Interesting to see that only 11% of the gin served came in a branded glass. So you can download a, a seven page top line report with some things. What you could also do if you're interested is get in touch with Shepper, uh, get in touch with us at Shepper and we can uh, set up um, a dashboard access for you and we can take you through the report in more detail and and really give you some of the insight that you might be looking for. But uh, so a, a good snapshots contained into the report we share for free online. Uh, if people want to dig in deeper, they can get in touch with us and we can uh, we can talk more detail about it. If you're a craft distiller at first glance, this report seems discouraging. Why try for the hospitality industry when it's locked up? But I would say this report shows that there is great potential to be had. Brighton Distillery and Edinburgh Gin prove you can own the town you're in. If you listen to the podcast with Kathy Catton of Brighton Distillery, she explains how they became a community gin. Why someone hasn't done the same in Manchester, Liverpool, Leeds or any other UK city or town is a mystery as Tony Derbyshire mentions. Trust us, the opportunities are there. The Distillers Journal Podcast production of BB Media, produced and hosted by Velo Mitrovich and Ross McPherson. I would like to give a special thanks to Toby Derbyshire of Shepherd, our sponsors, and most of all to you, our listening compadres. Have a good one.